In a valley, among the foothills of the mountains, Finrod saw light in the evening, and far off he heard the sound of song. At first he feared a raid of orcs, but as he drew near he perceived that it was not so, for the singers used a tongue that he had not heard before, neither that of the dwarves nor the orcs. Then Finrod, standing silent in the night shadow of the trees, looked down into the camp, and there he beheld a strange people. It's question time. Hey, this is Sam. And this is Raleigh. And welcome back to Quenya Questions in Quarantine, the show where my friend Raleigh makes his way through the Silmarillion for the very first time, and I'm here to do my best to guide him along the way. Today's chapter is of the coming of men into the West, and let me quickly catch us up from last chapter, which is called Of Maeglin. In Of Maeglin, we learned about the character of Maeglin, who is the son of darkness and light, the Dark Elf Aeol and the White Lady of the Noldor, Arathel, and we left Maeglin without a mother and father. They both died last chapter, and he's rising up to prominence in the hidden city of Gondolin, which we've talked about at length in the last couple of episodes. Maeglin is doing great in Gondolin, but he has a secret and dangerous love for his cousin Idril, the daughter of King Turgon of Gondolin. The dark seed of evil is sown because of this forbidden love for his cousin. But this chapter, we're going to leave the folks in Gondolin to their dark seed for a while and head east a little bit and see what's going on with the men. And for that, I'll throw it over to you, Raleigh, and the Raleigh recap. Take it away. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So as you said, this is of the coming of men into the West. So this chapter is going to be all about men and is really our first introduction into them. We've talked to them kind of as an abstract concept up to this point, but now we're really going to understand the chief characters of men in the first age of Middle-earth here. So as we know in the third age, they're uh, much more prominent, but this is the birth of men as we come to know them. But yeah, so we uh, we start off with um, an old buddy, Finrod Feligund. And Is he traveling around? I'm not quite sure what he's doing at this moment, to be honest. Yeah, great. So Finrod Felagund, which I just love the roll of that name off the tongue. And that's remember, Finrod is not a man, but he's an elf. He's one of the Noldor who have come back to Middle-earth, this eastern continent of the world from Valinor, the western continent where the gods lived. Finrod is the first son of... Finarfin, who is the wise branch of the Noldor, and Finarfin is the one who was wise enough not to abandon Valinor and come back to Middle-earth at all. But in Middle-earth, Finrod, who did make the journey along with a couple of his brothers and Galadriel, his sister, he kind of represents that wisdom of Finarfin, his father, in Middle-earth, and he has created the hidden stronghold of Nargothrond, which is one of these underground elven strongholds. And that's why he gets the name Felagund. The dwarves give him that name, and it means the hewer of caves. So Finrod got quite a bit going on. I think at this point, he's honestly just on a great hunt with some of the sons of Feanor 
and is exploring the world. Because remember, Morgoth at this point is pinned up in his fortress under siege for hundreds of years. So the elves and, as we'll learn, the men take this opportunity to just go exploring. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, so uh, he finds himself quite an interesting beast then, if you were hunting. Um, (laughs) And he uh, just happens upon the people of Beor the Old. And so Beor is a chieftain of men at this time. And these men are, as far as we know, the first to enter Beleriand. So Finrod is watching them from afar, keeping tabs on them as they're sleeping. Yeah, well, I think he's confused by them, right? This is his first encounter with men. I'm going to have to chill out here in the forest and check in on these guys for a bit before I make any sudden moves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So as they're sleeping, then he starts playing music and then actually awakens them from this music. And the men become entranced by the beauty and wonder and now become great followers of Finrod. And they learn quite a bit from him. And so here we have our first passage. This is talking about this, uh, this experience that they have. So indeed, they believed at first that Felagund was one of the valor of whom they had heard rumor that they dwelt far in the west And this was, some say, the cause of their journeying. But Felagund dwelt among them and taught them true knowledge, and they loved him and took him for their lord, and were ever after loyal to the house of Finarfin. So these men learn everything from Finrod and become honestly almost uh, not quite equals, but much more than uh, servants of Finrod in the house of Finarfin. So they become uh, good pals, really, with the sharing of this, uh, this knowledge and teachings from both the elves and men. Yeah, it's almost like an age of enlightenment, I picture, for the men at this time who have basically had a similar journey that the elves did, where they woke up way in the east and they've had to cross this huge mountain range, which we kind of know as the Misty Mountains in The Lord of the Rings, that remember Morgoth specifically built to stop the elves crossing over to make it like really difficult to move from east to west. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the men just had to take that same darn treacherous path to get over into Beleriand, which is in the western part of Middle Earth, and they're kind of a nomadic people at this point. They're not really cultured. They are primitive in a certain way. But upon meeting the elves, Beor, the old, and his people, culturally, they take a step to the next level. And as I gestured to in the last episode, that's really similar to what happens with the elves, right? Where the elves awoke in the east, they are met by the Valar and are enlightened in journey west to Valinor, where they really become next level spiritual creatures. And the men are kind of doing the same thing, but with the elves in place of the Valar. The Valar enlighten the elves, and now the elves are enlightening the men with a sort of step down in the amount of culture enlightenment along the way. But you, sure. s- you still get that vibe of the men who get access to the elves and really become their friends become more powerful and wise than those who don't get that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the elves had thousands of years with the Valor. The men are getting like thousands of seconds here. Yeah, they're getting the uh, crash course or the spark notes version of enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, all of that enlightenment for Tolkien kind of stems from those two trees, remember, in Valinor that have been destroyed. Even among the elves, the most enlightened elves are the ones who got to see the two trees. 
And that's not all of them. That's the Noldor who have come back, but not the Sindar, the Grey Elves, or the Dark Elves that stayed in Middle-earth. So there's this real hierarchy in terms of cultural progress that I think adds a richness to this story when you think about the different kinds of elves, different kinds of men, etc. But I do like this scene where Finrod shows up and plays the harp and really freaks out in a nice way, <laughs> Bior and the other men. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like bringing them back to the beginning of the world. For the men, this is now like their beginning within the world. Yeah. So the music of the Ainur brings them into uh, the cultural sphere of the elves. Yeah, great note, Rully. I, had, I hadn't even thought about that, how we talk about that importance of music again and the power of art to enlighten and to enrich life that Tolkien started his world with way back with the Ainur singing, as you said. As we said, Finrod and the elves were teaching the men, but they also wanted to learn from them to get like a little bit of a back and forth going. And so Finrod himself hoped to learn much from the men about their history, about where they came from. But really, they wouldn't tell him very much at all about their past. And so they say here, but when he, Finrod, questioned him concerning the arising of men and their journeys, Beor would say little. And indeed, he knew little. For the fathers of his people had told few tales of their past, and a silence had fallen upon their memory. A darkness lies behind us, Beor said, and we have turned our backs upon it, and we do not desire to return thither, even in thought. Westwards our hearts have been turned, and believe that there we shall find light. And so here we kind of learned that Morgoth personally went to the men when they woken in the east in an attempt to corrupt these uh, second children of Iluvatar. And so this is kind of what Beor is talking about, how Morgoth brought the darkness to the men. And now here they are trying to seek the light to uh, shed this evil from their past. So while the elves and then the men themselves don't really know their full history, we do know that Morgoth never actually achieved his full goals here. So Morgoth had gone to the men to recruit them and totally corrupt them to become, you know, his servants or his like orc lights or maybe even the super orcs. But he uh, was just unable to fully achieve this goal, even though he himself went there. At the end of last episode, I believe I said the men fall easy prey for the rumors of Morgoth. And I think I was giving them a hard rap, actually, now when I take a second look at it. There are going to be men that fall under Morgoth's sway, but mm -hmm. the people of Bayor and some of these other human civilizations fought through it. Like Morgoth came with his rumors and his lies and his offers of alliance or whatnot. And the men said, no, their hearts are darkened, but they are seeking the light. So the men doing better than I gave them credit for. I also think there's this interesting note about not only do the men not want to talk about their dark past with Morgoth, but also just because men die, it's harder to preserve your history, right? If you're an elf, yeah. it's easy to preserve your history because like you were there thousands of years ago for the men were presumably many generations down the line. It's not clear that the men have any sort of written history. So 
Kind of hard to tell you where we came from, Finrod. All I know is that we crossed these darn mountains <laughs> and it was a huge yeah. hassle. But <laughs> here we are and we're ready to learn. Yeah. And so the men then actually follow Finrod and go and live in Osirian and the other lands with the elves. They've shed their evil past in Morgoth and now are sort of assimilating with their elder brethren, I guess. The uh, the first child. Right. Kind of their older brothers in a way, if we're thinking of Iluvatar, the sort of main central god having the firstborn elves and the secondborn men. A little bit of an older brother, younger brother relationship going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And so honestly, that kicked off a uh, pretty long friendship between the men and the elves as they settled really across all of Valyriand and all the elven strongholds, presumably not Gondolin, right. but ev- really everywhere else except for Doriath. And so within Doriath, we have Thingol being a uh, moody ruler, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I think for Thingol, who remember is the most powerful elf that didn't decide to go to Valinor. So he has been the elven king of Beleriand for the whole time. He was one of the elves who got the sneak peek of Valinor, but then he fell in love with Melian, this demigod, Maiar, and established this kingdom of Doriath in Middle-earth. And now he's kind of like that grumpy homeowner who is mad about all these new kinds of people moving into his community you know like he's been get off my lawn he's a get off my lawn kind of ruler he's been king here for so long and then all of a sudden the noldor show up on the west coast and they start taking his lands not like by force but they're just occupying them building strongholds and he's like "Uh, okay well i'm glad you guys are fighting morgoth but that kind of belonged to me. So he was already mad about it. And now the men are showing up from the East and he's feeling a little like, you know, everybody's coming in onto his lawn from the West and East. So he's not mean to the men, but he does say, you can't come and live in Doriath, my forest kingdom here. You've got to stick to my property lines a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. But because we have Melian always the uh, foreteller here, She understands what the men's presence here means. And so she's speaking with Galadriel, who um, always seems to be in the middle of these uh, big conversations with Melian. I don't know if there's uh, some particular reason or if it's just that um, Galadriel is the most recognizable character. So we uh, so I notice it more often. But yeah, I think Galadriel, for the few lines she really gets in the Silverman, is frequently involved in these big prophecy moments. I think part of it is just that Galadriel is living in Doriath at this time. In a previous chapter, we went back and forth about why Thingol in particular likes the sons of Finarfin and Galadriel, the daughter of Finarfin, more than the other Noldor. So Galadriel's just chilling with Melian, would be a great person to hang out with, right? This Maiar god who still lives in Middle-earth. Galadriel has seen the light of the trees. She's quite a potent elf herself. So I'd love to be a fly on their wall, especially if their conversations are as intense as the moments we get cited in the Silmarillion like this one. I think you're about to read for us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in this case, Melian says to Gladriel, now the world runs on swiftly to great tidings and one of men, even a Bayor's house shall indeed come and the girdle of Melian shall not restrain him for doom greater than my power shall send him. 
and the songs that shall spring from coming shall endure all middle earth is changed yeah and remember the girdle of melian is this protective what we've described as a bubble shield sort of this enchanting distracting barrier that doesn't let anybody come into doriath unless melian lets them unless it's a power greater than melian of which there are very few in middle earth but melian is here saying doom greater than my power is going to come with one of these sons of Beor's house and basically she's not going to be able to stop him from making his way into Doriath. She must have like the craziest dreams. (laughs) (laughs) So Melian's saying somebody's going to come. It's going to be a man of Beor's house, this Beor the old who Finrod is harping to. It's going to be a couple of chapters before that happens, but it's a great chapter. That's going to be Baron, the one of Beor's house who's going to come in. But meanwhile, as you said, the men spread throughout Beleriand and many of them become vassals of the elves and form different levels of relationships, but all sort of positive, except that there is, of course, Morgoth doing his rumors as always. Yes, yes, exactly. And like you said, a lot of the rest of this chapter is just describing all the different houses and how they uh, spread across Beleriand. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But this first part here is key because, as Sam mentioned, it is now Morgoth coming back to try to corrupt the men again. Seems like he was somewhat successful when they're first awoken, but not totally successful. And so now they have a bit of a weariness for him. but. He's Morgoth. He's not giving up. So he's coming back with a vengeance here. And so there's an incident now. We've got a bunch of different houses of men living in Beleriand, kind of spread out all over the map. And there's an incident where we have a council of men. So this council is led by Amlok, who is a grandson of Marok, which perhaps we'll talk about a little bit later. All you need to know, it's just a dude. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just a a man who other men would listen to is kind of the gist of that character. Yes, he's he's no Aragorn. Let's just say that. (laughs) But anyway, at this council, there's a vocal minority of men who are preaching that the elves are the ones who should be feared and that Morgoth is actually the one that we should be friends with. And so at this council, we have this Oblock and he says the following. All of this is but elvish lore, tales to beguile newcomers that are unwary. The sea has no shore. There is no light in the west. You have followed a fool fire of the elves to the end of the world. Which of you has seen the least of the gods? Who has beheld the dark king in the north? Those who seek the dominion of Middle-earth are the elder. Greedy for wealth, they have delved in the earth for its secrets, and have stirred to wrath the things that dwell beneath it as they have ever done and ever shall. Let the orcs have the realm that is theirs, and we will have ours. There is room in the world, if the Eldar will let us be." And so here you have really the first schism within the men. So this is kind of similar to what we saw with the elves as well, where Morgoth is now pitting man versus man like he did elf versus elf back in Valinor. And now we're going to see the first time that some of these men actually leave. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just to add to that, it's not just elf versus elf and man versus man, but Morgoth seems to be a master of pitting, if we want to picture them as siblings, the elves and the men, pitting them against one another. Here, this Omlock, or as you may discuss in a moment, someone who appears to be Omlock, says, those who seek dominion of Middle-earth are the Eldar. So he's basically telling the men, hey, the elves are just trying to use you to get what they want, and you're never going to be their equals. What's crazy about that is here is what Morgoth said to the elves way back in Valinor when he was trying his first batch of rumors early on in the Silmarillion. The whisper went among the elves that the Valar held them captive so that men might come and supplant them in the kingdoms of Middle-earth. So almost the exact same argument way back when he told the elves, hey, the men are going to supplant you and steal everything. You should be really mad at the Valar and the men about that. And here he's telling the men to be really mad at the elves. So he's really just whispering in everybody's ear, trying to stir up trouble, but without really a new move. You know, this is like a Morgoth classic. (laughs) Yeah. And for good reason, because we know, of course, how successful his rumors were to the elves. And that's what allowed him to steal the Summerals, kill the trees and create the schism between the Noldor and the Valar. So he's like, well, if it worked on them, why wouldn't it work with the men as well? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just to uh, to go back a little bit, you touched on this a little bit, but um, maybe this is a new tool for Morgoth, but it seems to be a very effective one. And we said that Amlok was the one who pronounced this quote that has caused this schism, but he himself actually denies ever doing it. And so he denied being at the council. So it really begs the question, was it in fact Amlok or was it Morgoth pretending to be Amlok or a servant of Morgoth pretending to be Amlok trying to divide the men? Perhaps this is now yet another tool in Morgoth's arsenal where he can uh, emulate others or maybe even shapeshift and uh, immediately copy exactly what he looks like. Yeah, definitely a frightening thought to think that Morgoth or his servants can be walking around with the men that easily. So you're right that this is a new move. The message may be the same, but the method is Kind of like he's been practicing and now he's really got this pitch refined. Lucky for us, again, the men do better than I give them credit for. I would say most of the men say, hey, that's dumb. Omlock slash Omlock impersonator. We're going to stick with the elves. They seem pretty sweet. But some of the men do listen to these lies and just leave the land for this time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We have a few men who leave and return eastward. But uh, many of them, probably even most of them, stay and begin to develop the race of men within Beleriand, creating their own little uh, kingdoms throughout the land. And so in terms of plot, there really isn't a whole lot going on in the rest of the chapter. So it ends with us discussing these various groups throughout Beleriand. And here we get what I can only describe as... Tolkien's greatest name dump throughout the whole book and probably throughout all his writings. Um, So here we learn the houses of men and Sam will go through these in further uh, depth. But we get a list of many, many great men throughout the first age of Middle Earth. 
And so here we're introduced to Hurin, Tor, Baron, Arindil, and maybe a hundred more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that's a fair characterization. If Morgoth has perfected his most frustrating technique, this is perhaps the moment where J.R.R. Tolkien and Christopher Tolkien unleash their greatest name drop of all. Couple of quick points about that. If you are reading the book with us and you are overwhelmed by the names, I'll once again say just ride through it. You're going to be okay. I'll also say that pros and cons of the men, because of just the difference between men and elves, that the men die more quickly and have more children, that leads to more names, which can be more problematic. It also means, though, that many of these men die without doing anything important. So you can just glaze over them pretty easily in a way that you can't do necessarily with the elves. So pros and cons of the men there. But we do learn some really important names that are going to be important later. Hurin, Tor, Baron, and Arendel are all going to be important, but forget about them for now. We're going to get good intros of them when they become relevant. Thank you, Tolkien's, for reintroducing them to us later. If you are interested in the different kinds of men, I'm going to go through a way to keep track of them. It's sort of helpful. It's not as important as keeping track of those three types of elves, the Vanyar, Noldor, and Teleri. What's nice about Tolkien's organizational system is that it can be very dense, but it is frequently centered on these powers of three, right? So we have, of course, the three types of elves I just mentioned, where we had, remember, the Vanyar, who we said were like the Hermione Granger elves, who hung out with the gods forever and never leave. We have the Noldor, who are the Harry Potter elves, who are going to drive the story forward. And then we have the Teleri, the biggest group, the Weasleys. And we've kept that straight going forward. And then, of course, we have within the Noldor, the Harry Potters, we have three again. We have three sons, Feanor's House, the Crafty, Fingolfin, the Warriors, and Finarfin, the Wise. And we've been talking about Finrod, one of that Wise branch. Also, of course, we have three Silmarils that Morgoth has captured. And now following that pattern to a T, we have the three great houses of men. And these are the men who ignore Morgoth and are the elf friends. Sometimes in the Lord of the Rings, they're called the three kindreds of the elf friends. And they're pretty easy to keep track of. Uh, you know, it's all relative. But what's nice about it is we can kind of map these houses of men to the big branches of the elves, and there are three of each. So first, of course, we have the house of Beor, and Beor the Old we met in this chapter. He's the one who is being taught by Finrod, the first man we really get. And so his house, obviously very important. And the house of Beor is sort of like the Noldor. In fact, it says that they were most like the Noldor and most loved by them. They're dark haired. They have gray eyes. It says they're cunning and eager of mind. So just like the Noldor, right? Like really into quick thinking, being crafty, maybe like building stuff. And they have dark hair like the Noldor are known for. So that's the house of Beor. House number two, we have the house of Hador. These are closest to the Vanyar elves or the Hermione Grangers. It says they're the greatest of the house. They're tall, yellow-haired, powerful in body and mind. So these are like premium. <laughs> you know, like these are like mo the most physically and mentally acute 
men of this time, this house of Hador. They're great friends with Fingolfin's house, so like the warrior type of the Noldor. So picture them as the cream of the crop, though the other houses will do important events as well. So these are our, our like Norwegian, like our, our Swedish. Yeah, I'm picturing them sort of like Vikings a little bit. Okay. That's just my vision, not a canon thing, but I think you're right to think of them that way, especially with, yeah, the Swedish with the yellow hair and the blue eyes sort of vibe. So there, if we have House of Beor is the Noldor slash Harry Potter dark haired guys, then we have the House of Hador, who are the blonde and blue eyed Vanyar Hermione's. The final house, and actually the one I want to dig into a little bit today because I love their story is the House of Halith. The House of Halith, they are a bit of a lesser people than the other two houses to a certain extent. It says they're like woodland folk, they're less in stature and less eager in lore, and they delight in solitude. So these are kind of like our Weasleys or Teleri again, right? They're kind of spread out and they live alone. They have weird hobbies. In this case, it's farmsteading and like woodland stuff. They're good at like woodland combat. So those are the three. We have House of Beor, like the Noldor, the House of Hador, like the Vanyar, and then the House of Halith, the Weasleys who love solitude in the woods. And the one I want to talk about today, because we get a little story about them that I think is easily overlooked, but actually really interesting, is the House of Halith. And Halith, unlike all of these other houses, is a woman who we get our house named after, which I think is a refreshing change of pace, considering all of the other houses are named after men for both most of the elves as well as the men. And Halith's story is fabulous. And I think Halith actually serves as a prototypical Eowyn from the Lord of the Rings. And so this is going to be our Lord of the Rings tie-in today. Here's the story of Halith, who forms this third great house of the men. Basically, they come into Beleriand from the mountains, Halith and her people. Morgoth is ticked because he didn't do as well with his rumors as he thought. He thought he was going to be able to do it just with his trickiness and it didn't work out. So he's like, "Okay, let's do this the old fashioned way. Here comes a big old orc army to just kill all the men. And so he has his orcs come down and basically attack the people of Halith. And she's not the leader at this point. It's just a bunch of like nomadic farmsteading men who all of a sudden are assaulted by orcs. So are completely unprepared. They come up with a hasty defense and Halith's father, Haldad, leads that defense, but he's eventually killed. Then Halith's brother, Haldar, tries to lead the defense, but he runs out and tries to save his father's dying body. And then he is hewed down. So basically, like, all of the men who are trying to stop the orcs from killing all the citizens are killed and the mantle of leadership falls to Halith. And it says that Halith was a woman of great strength and heart. And she holds her people together for seven days in this hastily erected stockade as the orcs slowly butcher people and make their way in to try and just kill her whole people. 
but she holds out long enough that eventually they hear the sound of trumpets and Caranthir, who's one of the sons of Feanor, comes in with the elves and takes the orcs by surprise and kills them. And so then Haleth is made the ruler of her surviving people because she was the one that saved them really and helped them hold out for seven days. And she leads them into a different part of Beleriand and forms this house. So she's a real like warrior with the mantle of leadership pressed upon her, which I just really love. We don't get enough of those in the Tolkien story. No, not at all. (laughs) The reason I think of Eowyn is not just because she is a warrior woman like Eowyn is in The Lord of the Rings, but also it's almost like Haleth is an example of what Eowyn might have had to become if the wars of the Lord of the Rings had been won by Sauron. So remember Theoden um, in the Lord of the Rings, he wants Eowyn to stay behind and just govern their people. He and Eomir are going to like ride off to battle with the big ride in charge of the horses, etc. Yeah. But picture if they had done that and then Theoden and Eomir died. Sauron wins. There's no like army of the dead to save everybody. Things turn out poorly. Then Eowyn would have been left in this very similar position that Haleth is, right? Like the men tried to take charge, did a bad job <laughs> or, or not. They did a bad job, but they got killed in the process. And now I have to lead this hopeless battle that we're not prepared for. Our warriors are mostly dead, but Haleth pulls it out. And I can picture Eowyn would have done a similar job. And I have a quote from The Lord of the Rings that kind of envisions what that would have been like. In this quote, think about Eowyn's perspective, but also how Haleth must have been feeling when she had to hold her people together for these seven days of assault before the elves came to help. So Eowyn says... Shall I always be chosen? Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart to mine the house while they win renown and find food and beds when they return? And Aragorn responds and says, A time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. And Eowyn answered, All your words are but to say, you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Aeorl and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade and do not fear either pain or death. What do you fear, lady? He asked. A cage, she said. So I just feel here that Haleth really had to live out this nightmare that Eowyn is envisioning here, where the men have won renown, but they died and they failed to protect their people. And she is left in this desperate straits to protect the survivors. And she pulls it off, which I just absolutely love about Haleth, who forms this house. I'll also say I went on a bit of a deep dive about Haleth, actually, Raleigh, because I had honestly overlooked her in the past. 
when I've read the Silmarillion. And so I thought, wow, like this warrior woman doesn't get enough story, right? Like we only get a few paragraphs. And so I was looking around and thinking about the Lord of the Rings and Eowyn. I was thinking about the Lord of the Rings movies, which while you maybe haven't read the Silmarillion before, I know you're a big Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings movie fan. So you're plugged into that. And I found something interesting. There is a character in the Lord of the Rings films named Haleth. And yes, I, I, I know him. Yeah. Well, so so maybe you can describe who this character is. Yeah. So he is the uh, like 14 year old boy, maybe younger than that, who's at the Battle of Helm's Deep and Aragorn finds him just sitting there. And uh, Aragorn really loves his sword. <laughs> Yeah, that's a funny, yeah, funny way to describe it. But you're right. This is the little kid. The orcs are marching on Helm's Deep and the men are sitting around knowing that they're in big, big trouble. Aragorn's sitting on the stoop, just waiting and brooding. And this kid looks panicked and he says. The men say it is hopeless that we will not live out the night. And Aragorn, yeah, says like, what is your name? And he says, I am Haleth, son of Hama, my lord. And then Aragorn takes his sword and he swings around a couple times, like as if he can test a sword that way. And then um, <laughs> hands it back to him. And he says, this is a good sword, Haleth, son of Hama. There is always hope. And there's this little like glint of hope amid this really terrible situation that the men of Rohan find themselves in, in Helm's Teep, in the Two Towers movie. What that made me think of, Raleigh, is so one, they clearly just looked up old like men names when they're naming this character, right? Haleth does not show up in this context in the Lord of the Rings book in Helm's Deep, but it makes this nice moment in the movie. But the more I thought about this, the more interesting I think it is that they name this kid Haleth, which probably just by coincidence ends up being the same name as Lady Haleth from back in the Silmarillion, her held her people together. And here's why I think this is interesting, and I'm sure it's completely accidental by the movie, but I think it's wonderful. Their situations are very similar, right? The plight of the people of Rohan in Helm's Deep is very similar to Haleth and her people. There's a huge army of orcs that they're not prepared for that is about to come try and kill every single person. So Haleth, that little boy in the Lord of the Rings Two Towers movie, and Haleth and Simran, same spot. So interesting that they be mentioned there. Also, we have to remember what happens immediately after that moment? So in the Cimmerillion story, Lady Haleth and her people are saved when, quote, suddenly there came a music of trumpets and then the elves arrive, the son of Feanor, and save her people. Well, you know what happens in the Two Towers movie less than one minute after we meet Haleth, son of Hama, in the Two Towers? Aragorn is downstairs and he hears the trumpets of the elves and Legolas says that is, <laughs> oh, yeah. that is no orc horn. And they go up and here's Haldir and a ton of elves who have come to save the day. And Haldir shows up and remember, he says, an alliance once existed between elves and men. Long ago, we fought and died together. We have come to honor that allegiance. 
he's referring to a different alliance between elves and men, but he just as well could be referring to this battle with Lady Halith in the Silmarillion where the elves and men work together to defeat the orcs. So it's this crazy little parallel that that name Halith makes me think of. And my favorite part about that probably accidental but really interesting parallel is about Aragorn. And this is movie Aragorn, fans of the book only, sorry that we're off on this tangent, but (laughs) Aragorn in the movie, he hears the little boy say his name, right? I am Halith, son of Hama. And Aragorn, the character, he knows his history, right? And he might know about Lady Halith from the Silmarillion. And so Aragorn at this point is super depressed. He's saying like, we're all going to die. The orcs are coming. But then he hears this little boy say Halith. And he's like, hey, if Halith in the Silmarillion could pull off this comeback, then there is still hope. And when he hands the sword back to the kid and he says, this is a good sword, he even emphasizes, he's like, Halith, son of Hama, there is always hope. So it's almost like he himself is referencing this story about Lady Halith. Then when he sees the elves show up a minute later in the movie, that's another reason he's so excited because he's like, yes, it's just like what happened to Lady Halith and her people. We do have a shot. And so this interesting. Yeah. So it really is just like kind of really changed my whole perspective on that part of the film. Again, none of that happens in the book, but I just thought it was a wonderful accident that changes my feeling about that two towers. Yeah, movie. that's a that's a deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think about that, Raleigh? Do you think there's any chance that that was an intentional writing of Halleth as the name of that little boy? I'm going to choose to believe so. Yeah, honestly, it could have been any any name, really. I mean, it was a made up character, right? So the fact that it was this uh, hearkening back to this old first age lady who led her people during desperation. I'm just going to choose that that was uh, intentional and they they knew exactly what they were doing, because otherwise they could have chosen any number of names. And let me tell you, there are quite a few. (laughs) So we could have gone with like a uh, a Harith, a Galdor, a Gundor, a Hador, but no, we went with Haleth, the Eowyn-esque lady from this earlier time that maybe is a symbol of hope to these people. So I'm going to choose that as a reason that they actually did mean to choose the name. And you've just made the uh, the movies that much better for me. Awesome. Well, I feel like the Silmarillion has just made the movie that much better for me. So I'm not going to take any credit. Try and make you a believer here, Raleigh. <laughs> Everything is, yeah, is yeah. has a purpose. It's done intentionally. You can you can call me a Halith truther at this point. <laughs> love it, love it. Well, I know I've run on in my deep dive of Halith, so let's quickly preview what happens in the next episode before we sign off today. In the next chapter of the Silmarillion, things get very bad. If 2020 has been a bad year for the real world with our quarantines and (laughs) coronavirus, the free peoples of Middle-earth are about to have their 2020. Morgoth, at last, 
is going to release his greatest weapons and the powers of elves and men are not going to be enough to stop him. Next time on Quenya Questions in Quarantine, Dagor Bragolak, The Battle of Sudden Flame.